8. We're going to be in Mark 8, 9, and 10 this morning, so I strongly encourage you to grab a Bible, follow along, turn on your electronic device or however you follow, but Mark chapter 8 is where we'll begin. So for the month of June, uh, we've, we've gone through some highlights in the Gospel of Mark. I started right there in Mark chapter 1, and that first Sunday in June, and I'm looking at how Jesus invites us. He invited his disciples to come and follow him. And building up in that first lesson to Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, where part of the invitation was to come and to be with Jesus. And then the next week, we looked at how Jesus invites us not only to be with him as disciples, but to be sent. As we had a group that just went to Honduras and just returned, you know, we have, we have a mission that we're a part of, and Jesus sends us, and he sent his disciples. Last week, we looked at Mark chapter 7 and the Syrophoenician woman. And we titled that lesson, The Invitation to Expand. That's to expand your worldview, the way, the lens through which you see the world. And that's also an invitation to expand the borders of the kingdom of God. And this morning, we're going to look at this invitation to descend. And and hopefully that will make sense as we go along. So Mark chapter 8, this was our scripture reading this morning. And I'm going to scan back over this and And talk about a few things because this is going to be important for us to understand what I think Jesus is doing in the way that Mark sets up this sub-story in Mark. He's telling us another sub-story as a part of the larger gospel story. In Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, there's a blind man uh, and they bring him to Jesus and he begs Jesus. He wants to be healed. He wants to receive his sight. In verse Uh, 23, Jesus takes him outside of the village, and he spits, and he touches the man's eyes, which is strange. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you, you see that Jesus has the ability to heal people, but usually he can do that just with his words. He doesn't have to even physically be present to heal someone, but here, not only is he physically present, but he has this weird display going on, spitting and touching the guy's eyes, and look at the response. Jesus said, do you see anything at the end of verse 23 and in verse 24? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So obviously we get the idea, maybe this guy has not always been blind. Maybe he progressively went blind at some point in his life and he remembers what people look like. But regardless, he's not seeing clearly right away. He sees people, but they look like trees. So it's kind of like it's fuzzy. I taught through Mark chapter 8 at a camp a few years ago, and I wanted to use an object lesson. I'm not always great at object lessons, but we decided, a co-teacher of mine, uh, to get prescription glasses, and we had students wear these glasses, and they would have to complete an obstacle course wearing the glasses. We got them all foggy, and they, it was very difficult for them to complete the, the course, but the, the object was, it's hard when you see things, but they're foggy. And that worked great until one kid actually ran into a tree. And I was like, man, you are really illustrating this point for us. Uh, He saw people, but they looked like trees. This blind man sees people, but they look like trees. So why? Why is he not completely restored right away? Why is he still somewhat blind? Well, Jesus is going to do a double take here in verse 25. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. His eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So eventually he can see, but it just doesn't happen right away, which is interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, 
there's only two instances of a, of a blind man being healed. This one and the one we read in our scripture reading in Mark chapter 10. So look at that one for just a moment. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 46, there's this man that comes to Jesus, Bartimaeus. And in verse 47, uh, he heard that Jesus is coming, so he's shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. That's discipleship language. That's what we saw in Mark 1, 2, and 3 where Jesus says, come follow me. Here he says, call him. That's discipleship language. So they called, him, they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside. In the ancient world, when you would throw your cloak aside, that was symbolic for death. So the symbolism is rich here. He's throwing his cloak aside. Jesus has called him. He's dying to this old self. He comes up to Jesus. He jumped to his feet, came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. He has this desire to be able to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And look at this word that Mark uses. Immediately. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So we have these two stories, Mark 8, Mark 10, two different blind men who are healed by Jesus, and they're very different from each other. The first blind man, Jesus has this, the spitting and the touching, and it doesn't work right away. The second blind man, Jesus doesn't spit, he doesn't touch his eyes, but immediately the guy can see. Those are the brackets for this sub-story. So something is going on here. Mark is trying to tell us something by the way that he positions this in the story. Everything that takes place in between these two healings is a part of this sub-story. It's about seeing clearly. That first blind man is symbolic of how the disciples see. Jesus has this vision, and he's taking his disciples on a, mature, on a maturing process. And they're kind of like that first blind man. They're not going to fully catch the vision. They're not going to fully see what Jesus is trying to do. Um, back in 2011, Jessica and I left the country for about five months. We left in August, and it was 100 degrees, super hot outside, and we didn't come back until December. So when we returned, um, it was Christmas time, and it was cold outside. We were gone long enough, not a long time, but long enough to where we had a little bit of culture shock. We really missed home, and we were ready to come back. And I will never forget the night and the next day when we returned, after being gone for over five months. We got in the car, we were picked up at the airport, and they were driving us back to where we were staying. And I kept commenting on all the streetlights. I just kept saying, look at all this electricity, look at all these streetlights, and people had their Christmas lights. And I was like, look at the brightness. It was nighttime, and you could just see lights everywhere. Because where we were in Africa, electricity kind of came and went, and at nighttime, it was very dark. And so I was amazed at the electricity. I grew up around street lights and electricity, but I was seeing it different. When we got to the house where we were staying, now we had been traveling for over 48 hours, and I was completely exhausted. But I walked up, and I turned on the faucet, and I cuffed my hands, and I just started drinking the water. And I, even, I honestly, I teared up a little bit because I was like, clean water. Because the last five months, every time I would drink water, I would get sick. And so here I am drinking what I consider clean water. Some of you may think uh, water from the faucet's not clean, but 
I'll drink it. And so I was drinking, and I was, I was so excited. I was like, clean water, electricity. I went to bed, and then the next day, I was out in the backyard tossing my, the football around with my brother, and uh, my vision was kind of like this. I kept saying, look at these trees, the yellow and red and orange leaves. I was like, look at this place. It's beautiful. And then finally he said, dude, what is wrong with you? Why are you acting so mushy? And I was like, well, I'm tired for one, but also I've never really paid attention to this before. I've been so immersed in it, I've never really noticed it. And even though I'd grown up around it, I was seeing it for the first time. And now my life is different because I am very thankful when the seasons change. I'm thankful for clean water. I am thankful for electricity. For those of you who have been in Honduras, you might notice some of those things in the next few days and how blessed we really are. But it was like I could finally see clearly. And what I think Jesus is doing in the section that we're looking at this morning is he is trying to help his disciples see clearly. They've been with him, they've listened to him teach, they've, they've watched the example that he is setting for them, but they're still not getting it. So he's working on his disciples' eyesight. So in between the two healing stories, three different times Jesus is going to predict what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Passion prediction. All three times the disciples will respond with confusion, misunderstanding, not seeing it clearly, and then all three times Jesus will respond to that with a paradoxical teaching. Now, Jaime mentioned paradox, and we are looking at that at our 360 event on Sunday evenings. And if you weren't here last Sunday, let me give you a quick definition of what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems contradictory, seems absurd. But in reality, there may be some truth to it. Now, we're studying that on our Sunday evening 360 but we're going to look at some of these this morning because Jesus loved his paradoxical teaching. So Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at this first one. In Mark 8, 27 through 30, uh, Peter makes this huge confession. He believes you, Jesus is the Messiah. So it almost seems like they're seeing things clearly. But he's going to make his first prediction in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's something that we understand. If you've gone to church, studied your Bible, you get the idea. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for us. He had to go through that. But if you could place yourself in the position of the disciples, what does this mean? This guy we've given up everything to follow is saying when we get to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed. And then the resurrection is just beyond their comprehension at this point. So we see Peter's response representing the disciples in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why would this happen? Here's Jesus who can heal sick people can resurrect the dead. He can do some amazing things. This would be a great military leader. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's establish his throne. Let's establish a military. And let's overthrow the Romans. And let's dominate. Let's conquer. That's what Peter's wanting. 
So he takes Jesus aside and he said, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no way you're going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. So Jesus responds to Peter in these famous words. He looked at Peter, he looks at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. And that's clear here. Jesus' thoughts, Jesus' vision, what is going to take place, this plan is not what Peter and the other disciples have in mind. They've seen this power from Jesus, and they're hungry for more. But Jesus says, what you have in mind is the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. So he has a passion prediction, and they're confused. Peter's confused, and he's representing the rest of the disciples. So he's going to respond to their confusion with a paradoxical teaching, which in my opinion would make them more confused. But let's look at uh, chapter 8, verse 34. He called the crowd to, to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. To us, when we hear these words, pick up your cross and follow me, we see that symbolism. We see Jesus dying on a cross. We've seen pictures. We've heard the stories. But again, this is before Jesus died on a cross. So when he says, hey, come follow me, deny yourselves and pick up your cross, what they're thinking, and they've seen crucifixions, I'm sure. They knew what a cross represented. It represented rebels and criminals, people of lower classes, and that's how Romans would kill them. It was an execution. It was torture. And Jesus is saying, pick it up. Pick up your cross and come follow me. And he says, if you want to save your life, you actually have to lose your life. But if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Paradoxical teaching. Okay, so there's chapter 8. They're confused. Some things take place, and then we're going to move on to chapter 9. This is the second prediction. In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So the second time, he's telling them what's going to happen. He's predicting The crucifixion, predicting it. And they're confused. And look at their response in verse 32 and following. They did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They're not going to ask him, because last time Peter said something, he was called Satan. So they're not going to say anything. They're confused. They don't understand what's going on, but they're silent. This passion prediction, they're confused. And then he continues on. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. That's their conversation. They're like little children who are caught and they're in trouble and they know it. Uh, Earlier, what we didn't read is the transfiguration. When Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured and he only chooses three of the twelve. Peter, James, and John. So maybe because of that, That sparked a conversation about which one of them is number one, number two, and and they just want to know who's the best, who's the greatest. In the sports world, we have this saying called, who's the goat? 
Have you heard of that? Maybe you've used that. GOAT stands for greatest of all time. Uh, that's a popular way of referring to who you think is the best athlete. So when Peyton Manning won a Super Bowl a couple years ago, everyone was saying Peyton Manning is the GOAT. <clears throat> Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl. Everybody's saying Tom Brady is the GOAT. Okay, greatest of all time. People want to know the NBA championships were just a few weeks ago, and when LeBron James is playing, they're always comparing him to Michael Jordan, and they're asking, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest of all time? Because we naturally just want to know, who's the best? Are we better than someone else? Where are we on the chain? And the disciples are wanting to know, out of all 12 of us, it's not enough to just be an original apostle. Which one of us is the greatest? So Jesus asks them about that. They're confused. And now he's going to respond with another paradoxical teaching. Sitting down, verse 35, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. That's a paradox. That makes no earthly sense. If you want to be first, well, then you try to be first. But Jesus says if you want to be first, then you become last. You become a servant. But he doesn't just stop at that paradoxical statement. He illustrates the point. And look at verse 36. He took a little child whom he had placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So maybe you're familiar with some of the pictures. All the the paintings and the children's Bibles of Jesus wearing a white robe and a blue sash and his hair's got a perm and he's not sweating at all. And these kids are all around him and there's these paintings of Jesus. That's what we picture. He loved kids and kids loved him. And he did. But what we need to understand is the difference between our culture and the culture that Jesus taught him. In our culture, we love children. We esteem children. We have children's ministries and youth ministries, and we have school, and, and we center our lives around kids. We invest in our children, and we should. I love my kids. But in the first century, when Jesus grabbed a little child, and he says, unless you welcome a child, you're not welcoming me. In the first century, children were not esteemed like they are today. In fact, in Roman law, You could be punished for killing a slave or a prostitute, but there was no law against killing a child. That was up to the family. Most children weren't even named until the eighth day, and then up until the eighth day, the father could decide whether or not they would want to keep it. Sometimes if they wanted a male and they got a female, they'd just get rid of it, drowning, exposure. These were common practices in the first century, and it wasn't illegal Children were not esteemed like they are in our culture. So when Jesus grabs a child and he says this, he's illustrating his point of the first will be last, the servant of all. He is literally grabbing the least of these who would have been considered the last on the social chain around him. And he's illustrating his point. This is what it looks like in the kingdom of God. The way up is actually the way down. If you can't identify with those who are on the last on the social chain, then you can't be a part of the kingdom of God. Or at least you don't see clear enough to understand what Jesus is doing. And he challenges them to become servants, not masters. These are Mother Teresa's feet. There's a nice image for you on a Sunday morning before lunch. 
Uh, a man named Shane Claiborne once traveled to India where Mother Teresa was working. And they worked with her and, and their charity, their mission for a little while. And they noticed that her feet, they looked a little disfigured. So he asked someone, what's wrong with her feet? What happened to them? And they said, well, we rely on donations for clothes, food, things like that. So we received donations of shoes. And they said, she always goes last. She lets children pick their shoes first. She lets the other workers choose their shoes And she's the last one to pick them. So sometimes she gets two left-footed shoes. Sometimes she gets two right-footed shoes. Sometimes she gets shoes that don't fit. And through time, it's disfigured her feet. So she has lived a lifetime of taking what Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be great, you have to become a servant. And she lived it out in just small decisions on a daily basis. And then you look at her feet and it tells the story of Jesus' paradoxical teaching. He calls us to be servants. In my neighborhood that I live in, uh, there's a man, an older gentleman in his mid-80s. He can't get around like he used to. He used to be very involved with his church. and um, He tries to find little ways to bless people. And on Tuesdays and Fridays is our trash pickup day. And people in our neighborhood that work late hours... He'll go, he'll go down the road on Tuesdays and Fridays, and he'll take your trash and pull it back up to the side of the house for you. Now that I'm working in Longview and commuting, there's many days on Tuesdays and Fridays when I come home, and somebody has already pulled the trash back up to the side of the house, and I know who it is. He's not doing it to receive credit. He's just doing it because that's a part of who he is. He's just a servant. We have another neighbor that lives across the street from us that's been battling cancer for seven years. And he goes to Dallas periodically and does these treatments. Sometimes he stays for over a week. And it really takes a toll on him. While he's gone, without missing a beat, the neighbors around him pick up his mail, mow his lawn. They do all this without any sort of compensation because that's just a part of their nature. It's a part of who they are. They want to serve. Because Jesus set the tone for what life in the kingdom of God is like. If you want to be first, you actually become last. Become a servant. So now in chapter 10, we have this third passion prediction. In verse 32 and following, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. So they're on their way. Jesus was leading the way. The disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and three days later he will rise. So here's the third time, and this time is the most detailed passion prediction. He's telling them literally, this is what's going to happen when we get there. Rejected, tortured, killed, on the third day he will rise. And now for the third time in this section... The disciples still don't see clearly. They're still kind of like that blind man from chapter 8. They see people, but they look like trees. So here's their response, this time represented by James and John in verse 35. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Say yes before we actually give you the request. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
So they're still thinking, elevate, ascend. He's going to take his throne, and we want to be the top two men, his right and his left-hand man. Look at what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. So for the third time, they're confused. The first time, it's Peter rebuking Jesus. The second time, it's the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And now it's James and John trying to elevate themselves above the other disciples. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And they don't. Because when he comes on his throne, on his right and left are criminals who are crucified beside him. So they really did not understand what they were asking. Skip down to verse 41. We have our third paradoxical teaching. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So he's using a worldly example. He's saying the Gentiles, Romans, whoever that might be, who have positions of power and authority. He says they lord it over them. In the Greek, there's this word dunamis, and it means power, like sheer power. The disciples, in these first ten chapters, they have seen that Jesus has this dunamis. He has this sheer power. He can walk on water. He can calm storms. He can resurrect people. He can heal people. He has power. There's another Greek word that represents authority. It's this word exousia. So Jesus has authority over nature. He has authority over demons. They see that Jesus has both this dunamis and this exousia, this power and this authority. And Jesus says, people of this world who are in positions of power and authority, they use that to power over, to lord over others. And look at what he says about the kingdom of God. In verse 43, he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we're back to that second healing story in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, who is healed right away and immediately can see. The disciples are more like that first blind man. They're still not catching the vision. They're not seeing clearly what Jesus is trying to do, but he's inviting them to descend rather than to ascend. They want to go and conquer and have power and authority over others. And he said, instead, the first will become last. If you want to save your life, you have to actually lose your life, become a servant, become like a child. This is what life and the kingdom of God is all about. This is what Jesus is inviting them to. Pine tree, the vision statement, is to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Christ. This is Jesus taking his disciples on this maturing process. It's not an easy road. They don't get it right away, which is comforting to me. He still calls them to be his disciples, and they have a long journey of understanding. You don't have to be perfect to become a disciple of Jesus. He'll teach you and equip you along the way. But he invites them to lower themselves, to power under rather than to power over. One of my favorite stories about being a servant, about what the kingdom of God looks like when it's on display is a story about a man named Dan Cathy, who's the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Now, one day, Rick Warren and Dan Cathy were at a construction site where they were building a Chick-fil-A. 
They were working a little bit, they got dirty, and they got hungry, so they decided to go next door to Taco Bell, and they were going to eat. So that's his competitor, right? They go into the bathroom to wash up, and Rick Warren said he looked over and he saw Dan Cathy cleaning the sink in the bathroom at this Taco Bell, and he said, you're a CEO of this large company, and this is your competitor, and you're in here cleaning the bathroom. That's nice of you, but why are you doing this? And he said, Rick, we teach our employees to leave a place better than how we found it, whether it's our place or someone else's. To leave a place better than how we found it. Here's somebody with power and authority, and instead of powering over, he's using it to serve. And that statement, I think, fits with what Jesus did. He came to this earth, and he left it better than he found it. And he calls us to do the same. He had a home in heaven, and yet he descended and came to earth. He had the option to have a throne and ascend to the throne on earth, but yet he descended to a cross. He had the option of being a master, but yet he became a slave. He could power over others, but yet he powered under. And he calls us, he invites us to take this same path. Uh, This morning when we sing this song, we're going to offer an invitation, and there may be some people in the room right now, and maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm ready to get baptized, I'm ready to become a disciple, and that invitation is for you. We also have shepherds who will be scattered around the building and, and standing in the back, and if you need to talk with someone privately, you can do that. You can come up front, you can grab a shepherd, and some of you... Maybe there's something on your heart, on your mind, and and you're not going to respond right now, and you need to think about it. The invitation doesn't stop after this song. You can find someone at some point today, sometime this week, but let God work on your heart. And if you need to respond, you can do that right now. Let's stand and sing. As I am without.